Film Spotting SVU is presented by Movies on Demand on Cable, bringing the latest indie movies into your home at the touch of a button. Mark Ruffalo and Zoe Saldana star in Infinitely Polar Bear, the story of a bipolar father who takes over responsibility of his two children while his estranged wife attends graduate school in New York City. It's now playing on demand. Also playing on demand is The Green Inferno, directed by Eli Roth. It tells the story of a group of student activists who are captured by a pack of bloodthirsty cannibals on a trip to Peru. Ooh, fun. The latest independent films are ready when you are, with Movies on Demand on cable. The Art House is now in your house. From New York City, this is Film Spotting, streaming video unit. I'm Allison Wilmore. And I'm Amy Nicholson, chief film critic at the LA Weekly, filling in for Matt Singer, who's on paternity leave. In this episode, Alice and I will take a look at the recent Western that has more bestiality than The Revenant and does more uncomfortable things with race than The Hateful Eight. Yes, that's The Ridiculous Six, Adam Sandler's first original Netflix movie. And later in the show, we'll bring you cue shots, where we recommend some titles you can rent or stream at home right now, all featuring a common theme. And inspired by the character Adam Sandler plays in the movie, a man who's been raised by Apaches, we were going to look at the idea of the white guy who's become, or been raised by, a natives in the movies, uh, except that, you know, no one wants to hear me monologue about my deep and sincere abiding love for Michael Mann's The Last of the Mohicans for hours as the soundtrack loops in the background. I was fully prepared to do that, though. So instead, we're going to talk about the career of Adam Sandler, a man who's made some funny movies, some deeply reviled ones, and some that are both funny and deeply reviled. But first, it's opening break, a segment we do in conjunction with our sponsor, Movies on Demand on Cable, in which we spotlight a few notable films new on demand on cable. And I've got three new movies to highlight, all currently available on demand. First up is Sleeping with Other People, Leslie Headland's romantic comedy about two people who, years after losing their virginities to each other in college, form a friendship while trying to deal with their respective sexual hang-ups. Lainey, played by Alison Brie, has an unhealthy relationship with a guy she's been on and off with for years, even though he's engaged to someone else. And Jake, played by Jason Sudeikis, is a compulsive womanizer. And if you've ever rolled your eyes at romantic comedies in which a really dumb misunderstanding keeps a couple apart for most of the movie, well, here's one in which the characters actually attempt to talk about their feelings and acknowledge that being in love with someone doesn't guarantee a happy ending. So that's Sleeping with Other People, available on demand right now, as is The Keeping Room. That's Daniel Barber's Western thriller starring Britt Marlin, Haley Steinfeld, and Muna Otaru as a trio of women trying to protect themselves in the last days of the Civil War as two rogue soldiers lay siege to their house. And finally, also new on demand is Captive. It's a drama starring David Oyelowo and Kate Mara, and it's based on the true story of uh, incidents that took place in Atlanta in 2005 when Brian Nichols killed several people, escaped from a courthouse, and ended up taking a woman named Ashley Smith hostage in her apartment. Smith ended up reading to him from Rick Warren's Christian self-help book, The Purpose Driven Life, and uh, managed to talk him down. So it's kind of a stealth. Uh, faith-based film, but it's got, you know, a big-name cast, and uh, there's something very interesting about that. So The Keeping Room and Captive are also now available on demand. That's a good amount of money you want us to lend you. Normally, we would require two forms of identification, madam, but that won't be necessary in your case. (laughs) I feel kind of guilty about this, Burrow. 
taking money from nice people. I mean, it's not like you're some greasy Mexican. <laughs> I feel less guilty now. What are you doing? This is a bank. Get that donkey out of here. So Matt Singer is still away on paternity leave. Uh, and I'm lucky enough to get to have Amy Nicholson Skyping in from Los Angeles today to be a guest host. Um, when I asked Amy what she'd like to discuss for our main review, she said, are we evil if we do Ridiculous 6? And the answer to that is obviously yes, we are evil. And yes, we're totally going to talk about that. Uh, particularly since today, uh, Ted Sarandos from Netflix announced that it was the most watched movie in the history of Netflix uh, in its first 30 days. Uh, Netflix, of course, never gives anyone numbers. So those are numbers that you just have to trust. But a lot of people have watched The Ridiculous Six. It is the first, as Amy mentioned, of a four-picture deal that Sandler made with the company. Though it's not their first original movie, uh, that would be Kerry Fukunaga's Beasts of No Nation just a few months earlier, which we've talked about in this podcast as well. It is the company's first attempt at the equivalent of a studio movie with a big-name star. Uh, the Ridiculous Six was in development for a few years before it ended up at Netflix. It's directed by longtime Sandler collaborator Frank Karachi, uh, who, among other films, directed The Wedding Singer, Click and Blended. And it stars Sandler as Tommy White Knife Stockburn, a white guy who was raised in a Native American tribe and who has incredible talent with knives some superhuman mystical abilities, and a beautiful fiancé named Smoking Fox, played by Julia Jones. One day, he's visited by a man who claims to be his long-lost father, Frank Stockburn, played by Nick Nolte. And not long after that, the guy's kidnapped, and White Knife comes up with a plan to save him. This is frankly nonsensical, even for an Adam Sandler movie. If these people are so great at what they do, particularly him, I don't know why he couldn't just go rescue his dad instead of plotting heists to raise money to free him. But in the process, he meets five half-brothers he never knew he had, uh, played by Rob Schneider, Taylor Lautner, Jorge Garcia, Luke Wilson, and Terry Crews. There's also a donkey with explicit diarrhea, a gang whose hazing ritual involves gouging out an eye, and there's Vanilla Ice playing Mark Twain. So Amy, this film has taken a critical beating, as most Adam Sandler movies do. Did it, in your opinion, deserve it? And more importantly, did you laugh? Whew, okay, those are two very, very different questions. <laughs> did it, does it deserve a critical beating? Yes. This movie is absolutely horrible, and I cannot <laughs> wait to start getting into it with you. Did I laugh? I laughed at precisely one joke, but the joke happened a lot, which I guess means I laughed a lot, but not that much. I didn't enjoy it. Now I'm tugging in circles because I feel guilty about laughing at The Ridiculous Six. But can I tell you what I thought was funny about it? And maybe you'll agree. And maybe you won't kick me off this podcast oh, on my very please. first time here. Please. Wasn't Taylor Lautner kind of great? <laughs> <laughs> that was not what I was expecting. <laughs> well, Taylor Lautner, for people who haven't seen it yet, which might not be that many people given those astounding Netflix sort of numbers that they're talking about. Uh, he plays Adam Sandler's half-brother, who's the moron brother, he's I suppose? Like, yeah, he's like a yokel, basically. Like, in the yeah. most stereotypical sense. An absolute mouth-breather. Like, he's the kind of guy, when a guy falls down, he goes, oh, he fell on his pooper. And that is not funny. That is, It's not funny at all. However, Taylor Lautner is committed. Yeah. 
I mean, this is a guy who I don't think of as much of an actor, you know, given that he's only done the Twilight movies. And then whatever that thing is where he ran around with balloons and tried to escape, like, security cameras. And the parkour movie, which I never saw. Oh, is he any good at parkour? I don't know. He's, he's, like, he's famous for being able to take off his shirt very impressively. That's one of the skills he's been known for in his Twilight days, right? (laughs) He's very excellent at taking off his shirt when he gets, like, say, Bella's wedding invitation in the mail and then running angrily in the rain. Yep, exactly. But you know what he's really also good at is is being kind of dumb. And here he's just really, really dumb. And he's fantastic at it like he's got this weird grin and his eyes are almost exploding out of his head and he just looks so happy to be there and like he doesn't break character he i will say this about taylor lautner playing the moron brother in ridiculous six he does not seem embarrassed to be taylor lautner playing the moron brother in ridiculous six Mm. he seems to think it's the coolest thing ever and he kind of won me over i don't think i've seen an actor commit that much to something so bad Oh, you're kind of like bringing me around to it. I didn't hate him in this movie. <laughs> I didn't hate him in this movie, but I, I feel like I, I felt like in some ways, like he and Jorge Garcia seem like they're trying to make up for Adam Sandler's total lack of energy by like just both being like huge, playing huge kind of ridiculous char- ridiculous characters. But you're right, Taylor Watner is like really committed, and for a guy who has been accused of coming across as very wooden in his dramatic roles that he's had in in what's admittedly a short career. He's a young guy. Uh, He looks much more alive and engaged in this movie than he has in a lot of the others that he's done so far. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if the guy's even going to get many other movies after this, honestly. But if he's going to go out, at least he's going to go out with something memorable. Sort of. Yeah. Am I actually saying watch Ridiculous Six for Taylor Lautner? This is not a sentence I thought I'd ever say. <laughs> if they if they made posters for it, oh, they may, I guess they do. That should really go on it. <laughs> this movie is not worth watching, but if you're going to watch it, you should watch it for Taylor Lautner's amazing comedic performance as Little Pete Stockburn. Who knew? But you're <laughs> I mean you're so right to say that I think he is making up for the fact that Adam Sandler can't even be bothered to be in this movie. Which is starring him. He looks so bored to be there. Can we talk about that a bit? We're going to talk about Sandler, uh, Sandler's career later. But I, I feel like in the last like slew of movies, and this one in particular, he looks deeply unhappy. Like he does not look like someone who wanted to make this movie, which is ridiculous because no one forced him to make this movie. I feel like he has enough money that if he never wanted to make a movie again, he would be perfectly fine. Yeah, he's got, I'm going to go and screw off on a desert island money. Right. Except he does, I don't think he would like exotic food. He strikes me as like a chicken fingers kind of guy. Yeah, he's, you know, he's pretty proudly populist. (laughs) Why is he so, I mean, it's weird that he casts himself as essentially the straight man in this. Like, that character is only a slightly more exaggerated version of like a typical kind of Western badass. Like, yeah, he just strolls around and he has his like face all somber and he kills people, but he doesn't look like he enjoys it because the world's just intense, man, or something. <laughs> it's true. And the thing is, I was so sad that the movie never really used the opportunity to to dig into or make fun of what's a stock character type, right? Like from Daniel Day-Lewis and Last of the Mohicans to The Revenant, to Leonardo DiCaprio's character in The Revenant, right? The guy who is like the white guy who has been raised by Native Americans and who is like 
somehow sort of super heroic because of it. Like it's it's a it's a Western movie type. And I feel like instead of actually making fun of that in any way, this just has like a slightly tweaked version of that, but it's played pretty straightforward. Yeah, it's a Western type that definitely deserves an eyebrow, the mystical white man. But I mean, I have to admit, Sandler is so lazy that when his character walks in for the first time at a, at a hitching post where he's trying to buy flour, he's in this over-the-top Davy Crockett garb. And the camera pans down to, like, take in all of his suede and his fringe, and it gets to his feet. And part of me was like, I bet that – wait, can we swear on this? Uh, try not to. Okay, I bet that mother effer is wearing sneakers. I, that was like the first thing in my head. I was like, is he even going to be bothered to put on period appropriate footwear? Because I can't picture him in boots. And he's wearing, I swear, I think it's like brown orthopedic shoes. I don't, I think he was like, what is the most, what is the most comfortable thing I can wear that isn't actually appropriate, but maybe no one will notice. And that just seems to be like his entire career. I know. Well, I feel like, those early movies he actually seemed to be trying but I feel I feel like the last like I don't know I like over like the last 10 let's say just rough estimate a lot of them it's like he barely bothers to to do anything other than just stand there and I don't for a guy who's like made a big deal out of being like I work with my friends who I trust (coughs) I work with people I really like you know, he has, I think, kind of carte blanche to do what he wants. I don't understand why he looks so unhappy to be making movies. I know. Like, I actually just scenario. I just Googled it. His estimated net worth is $300 million. He doesn't have to be doing this. I also wonder how much he really likes his friends if he keeps making them be in his awful movies. <laughs> like, it's mean. Like, oh, he asked us. and I feel rude saying no, but really, I have to hang out the entire time with a burrow who has diarrhea? Yeah. yeah, and there are a lot of regulars in this, you know, um, Rob Schneider uh, is is one of them. But you- isn't, <laughs> isn't Rob Schneider basically playing Mexican Bob from The Hateful Eight? Yes. <laughs> it's the same character. And I like this movie came out at the same time as The, as the Hateful Eight, but obviously was not made in any way to spoof it because they couldn't have. But it ends up, it does end up being like a pretty good tie-in but wait what if it could have i mean the hateful eight script was leaked what if they really were like hey 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 oh wait though in the original hateful eight script it wasn't mexican bob it was like french canadian bob weird that yeah huh well i i will say i the one part i laughed by the way was the whole John Turturro sequence. Which is <gasps> that like, was fantastic. Right? It was like a random sketch in the middle of the movie in which uh, John Turturro basically invents, basc- or invents baseball by being really petulant about and making up weird rules to make sure he wins. <laughs> like, that was really clever. It didn't tie into the rest of the movie in any way. It was like its own sketch. But I was pretty charmed by that. I like. I was dying. He's like, I-, I could steal a base if your back is to me. Like, what? That's fantastic. <laughs> he's like, it's it's two strikes, and then he like misses twice in a row, and then he's like, three strikes, and then he invents balls. I was right. like, this is brilliant because you're right. Baseball is full of a lazy man's way of trying to win as best as you can. Right, and then you're like, ah, who came up with that kind of rule? And it does come across as something that a guy would make up on the fly just to make sure. Uh, he saves himself and uh, and saves his win. 
Okay, so I wanted to ask you. Yes. Like, one of the early bits of press that this movie got was when, like, a, a few of the Native American actors walked off set because they're like, this is demeaning to Native Americans and it's demeaning to women. Uh, and obviously they went on with the movie and it's done perfectly fine for Netflix. And Netflix is like, whatever. It's broad comedy. And I mean, there are a whole bunch of like broad stereotypes in this. Do you feel like this movie, I mean, it's a kind of an Adam Sandler thing at this point. Is this movie like offensive or is it like too lazy to be offensive? Well, you know, what's weird is I can imagine that Adam Sandler thinks it's not offensive because he's playing the the white man gone native who respects the culture and is married to a, a, an Apache woman. And that, you know, in the very first scene, he walks up into a bar, which is sort of like Minnie's haberdashery, not a bar, but the store, like Minnie's haberdashery has that sign, no engines allowed. And you think he's almost making a stand against racism against Indians. And he like destroys this group of one-eyed bandits who are making fun of him because he's an Indian and they're claiming that they can just like grab his woman and take her away. And then, and then a white guy rolls up to uh, his Apache village, to Adam Sandler's Apache village. And the very first thing all of the Apaches do is grab a tomahawk like they're going to attack him. And I'm like, wait, 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 you were just taking this stand against stereotypes. And now you're like, oh, but all Indians are actually violent. Like, <laughs> what? What are you doing? Yeah, I feel like it's, it's set up to be like, oh, like, it, like the ending is very much like very pro, like the Native American tribe. It's very much like we choose you, like we affirm your importance. But yeah, at the same time, it just it just to have all of the like the female characters be named things like Beaver Breath and Smoking oh, Hawks is like wearing the lowest cut tunics. <laughs> <sighs> It's like, don't you think they know they'd get sunburn if they were wearing something like that? <laughs> what is it? One of them is named, like, Never Wears a Bra or something like that. Oh, yeah. And she definitely, they make sure you know she never wears a never bra. Never wears bra. That's Adam Sandler's wife, Jackie Sandler. <laughs> <laughs> what? Yes. He married that? How did um, he land that? <laughs> he's worth Not to be talking about women, like, well, yeah. He's worth $300 million. <laughs> he's going to marry who he likes. <laughs> right. And then ne- punch me the next time I try to act like a woman is a reward. <laughs> that thing what can you imagine waking up in the morning and having to make breakfast with adam sandler i I mean it's funny because he is by like most accounts i mean filtered down through like totally unreliable hollywood you know second and third hand channels like a nice guy as far as a-list people who are totally removed from basic society are (laughs) that's the best qualifier (laughs) but i just i feel like when I watch this movie, I don't think there's any maliciousness in it, but I don't think there's any kind of real fondness or there's any real kind of like generousness of of spirit in it, you know? Yeah, there's something about at Santa that strikes me as a Scrooge just across the board, a Scrooge of happiness. Mm. Where I don't imagine him loving the world, which is strange because I used to think of him as a great optimist. And maybe we'll talk about that when we get more into his career. But he used to be the guy that everybody underestimated, but loved and tried. And now he seems like he's doling out favors. I don't even know if he smiles on this. I'm trying to picture it. But there's like, very, There's very rarely a scene, even when he's with the actors who are playing his brothers, who he chose, and who you think he, he chose because he had some kind of rapport with them or enjoyed kind of like doing bits of comedy with them. 
And it never, it never seems like that. It's so strange. I mean, I guess you could say that he considers himself to be an equal opportunity a drone. A drone mm-hmm. isn't quite the right word. But it's like, you're right. He's not passionate enough to be really taking the piss out of a person the way that, say, even Tarantino would. Or just a meaner comic would. The way that Chappelle would. The way that anybody would. He's just there being kind of dour about everything. Mm-hmm. But I did like his... Jokes that he included, I guess, maybe just to make it even, more than if he's going to be dour about everybody, where he does play a little bit with the idea of people who were doing racial stereotyping, you know, back in the West and today, where he disguises himself as, quote, like, an honest white guy to get away <laughs> with things. The idea that you can just make yourself look normal and then you get to blend in and, you know, secretly destroy the earth. Like, mm-hmm. I like that he was playing with preconceptions or say when there's another guy in the Apache tribe who does his white guy impression, uh-huh. which I don't want to ruin for people if they're going to see the movie. Although I, I guess we're telling them to see the movie. Why not? Why, why not see every movie? Right. But he, his impression of a white guy is like, hey, guys, let's eat potato chips, <laughs> which is so dumb and so perfect. Mm-hmm. I mean, and there's another part where I like the his adoptive father like the head of the tribe mentions you know it's like you cannot you can't trust the white man maybe you can trust them like one in 20 25 times which is it's really funny in its delivery i don't know i mean the problem i think is that like a movie like this also i feel like you can't help but think of blazing saddles which is the kind of movie that holds up still so well you know decades later for me and i i just feel like manages humor involving race even like even for a movie made in the 70s in ways that still feels sharper than whatever Sandler's trying to do here you're right I mean it's almost a truism that a movie like Blazing Saddles couldn't be made today because it would get way too many angry think pieces Mm -hmm. but I guess a movie like The Ridiculous Six can be made because it isn't as smart or as personal right like it's it's just there's something very it's like there's something even more old fashioned about the types of comedy it tries to do. I mean, some of it is like it's the donkey with diarrhea or like uh, the whole bit involving Steve Buscemi using ointment, uh, the same <laughs> fingers on like all different, but increasingly gross body parts. Right. That idea of like, the primeval doctors like this cream will work on your anal glands and on your ear infection and on your nose. Right. Like, and a Whoa. shaving cream. <laughs> <laughs> I did like, great. why am I laughing at a memory? Oh no. I'm laughing at more memories of, of the ridiculous six. Uh, or also like the memory where the, the burrow gives Taylor Lautner a BJ and the movie actually just does that. It just does that. It's like, here's a burrow and it's sexually pleasuring Taylor Lautner. Yep. And I feel like, honestly, that feels more daring than a lot of the rest of it. I mean, it's a, it's a joke that you saw coming. And yet the Ooh. fact that they were willing to go there, I don't know, it deserves some points, I guess. It does. I mean, for a Netflix movie that, can they even rate Netflix movies? I mean, I, I guess know. you could put like a parental control on it. They're like, ah, here, Netflix, take this. It's a burrow BJ. Now we get to make three other movies for you. <laughs> But, you know, I, I, it's funny, like, on the scale of movie, or, or uh, someone like the Fer- or people like the Farrelly brothers, I feel like there were times where their movies got dismissed, especially some of the earlier, one, earlier ones, which I liked a lot. Some of their movies got automatically dismissed by people who are like, oh, it's dumb comedy, it's gross out comedy, like, 
it's the lowest common denominator comedy when a lot of their movies are, uh, those early movies are pretty great, you know? But I feel like with Adam Sandler, when, when we say this movie is terrible, it's not because, and I don't think there's any way you can make the argument, even if you're a fan of his and watching this, that it's because people are being snobby, that people don't appreciate this kind of comedy because it is so lazy. Like it is so kind of slackly made and it is so disjointed, you know? And even if there are these bits in between that work, there is a lot of time in between those, you know, where nothing happens. I mean, you could never say that there's something about Mary is lazy. Right. It's together and it's fast and it's clipped and it's so perfect. I think that's one of the greatest comedies we've had in the last 20 years. I mean, is it 20 years old? I think that movie is like 20 years old now, maybe yeah. this year. And Kingpin? I love Kingpin. Like, exactly. It's a fantastic movie. But yeah, like even even as it it's like body, gross out comedy, it is made, it is tightly made, you know? It does not it wander the way this movie does where there was no there's no urgency to it. It's over two hours long. Why is it over two hours long? There is no reason why this movie should be over eighty minutes. I mean, <laughs> I mean yes, there's six brothers to introduce. You can get through that pretty fast. I mean, Luke Wilson barely gets a storyline. He's just kind of thrown in there towards the end. I know. And I mean, if we're going to be comparing this to something magnificent, like something about Mary, what makes that movie great is it's also pretty progressive for a gross out movie. It's a movie about how men project onto a woman. It's a movie where there's a female character at the center who's hilarious. And what I don't get about Adam Sandler is, despite his lovely wife, very lovely wife, now that I know what she looks like, he seems to think all women are just virgins or whores. Always. Always, always. And he does the same thing here, down the line. It's like, if it's a woman and she gets to have a moment that's funny, it's either going to be because she's sexy or it's because she's talking about having sex, but she's so ugly that it just grosses everyone out and they don't want to hear about it. That's really all you get to do in in a Sandler movie. Yeah, and Julia Jones in this movie, another Twilight franchise alum, just basically stands around in a short dress and gets kidnapped a few times. Like, she just is some, something to be rescued. Exactly. And that's exhausting. It's so lazy. And also, he's got to get over his daddy issues. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what's so strange about Sandler, and we're definitely getting into this, I think, later, when we get into the other four films of his and his oeuvre that we've selected, is that he is, he must be in his 50s now. How old is he? Um, let's find out. Let's find out. He's 49 years old. 49 years old. So he's about to be 50. And in all of his movies, he still acts like he's the innocent man child who just needs to grow up. And maybe he'll grow up this year. And he still has time to turn into a man. And it's like, what are you talking about? You're very old at this point. Like, if you're. Yeah. Yeah, you're a grown up. The fact that you think that this is innocence, the fact that you think you can get away with just being a naive is now actually like you've been locked in a room for 30 years. You're the creepy guy. You're rejected by society. It's not that you haven't had a chance to catch up. It's that society doesn't want you. Yeah. Yeah. And yet someone wants him because this movie has apparently been watched. Do you know what? The, the thing I wonder about that, that stat is what counts as a watch on Netflix? I was just thinking that. Because like, if you start playing it because it's been heavily pushed on the site or it's set up as like autoplay after you watch something else, does that count as a view? 
In yeah, which case, I don't trust those stats at all. Right, because anybody, I mean, it's been the number one thing on Netflix this whole month. Anybody would be like, ha ha, let's put it on for five minutes. Oh, God. And then they turn it off in three. Right. And I, I think that if it's set up to be the, the prompted thing to autoplay after whatever you've been watching, which at least one or two people have mentioned to me has felt like the case to them, then it's going to get automatic views just from people who aren't paying attention enough at the time to stop it. <laughs> um, <gasps> Way to game the system, Sandler. Seriously. Um, well, any other observations about uh, I don't, the first of, of this brave new world of, of internet Sandler content? Just one. I'm impressed that Vanilla Ice agreed to play Mark Twain. Yeah, you know, I felt like it was like, it was lacking a joke, but I, I appreciated that he showed up there. That, you know, casting-wise, unexpected. Exactly. Also, this cast was so good. Like, it, it's such a huge cast mm-hmm. that I could pick out, like, just random names and it would be a dream cast. Like, any movie is better with Terry Crews. That's a fact. Oh, yeah. Even he blended. Really, he, he gives his all in this. He's another person who does not look ashamed and does not act embarrassed to be in an Adam Sandler movie, playing a guy who can play the piano with his penis. It almost makes me want to be protective of him. Like, you don't have to say yes to this, Terry Crews. <laughs> he was the be- Did you see Blended? I did not see Blended. It's atrocious. It's atrocious. It's like, it's maybe right up there for worst thing Adam Sandler's ever done. But Terry Crews just shows up as like this, um, I, think it, I think they're in South Africa. I forget the country. But he's like the South African hotel entertainment director. Mm-hmm. And he's amazing. He <laughs> sings. He dances. He's fantastic. Will Forte being in this is another vote of confidence. You can imagine them being like, this is a big deal. We get to sign up for Adam Sandler's Netflix deal. I just, I wonder how many of his friends are going to come back for the second and the third and the fourth movie. Well, they've shown up for a lot of movies in the past, though. I, I wonder if there's anything at this point that could chase them away. Um, well, that is The Ridiculous Six, and it is now streaming on Netflix. Joseph Gordon-Levitt enjoys eating Google. So does Stanley Jake Gyllenhaal and the two guys who founded Google. Adam Levine wears a Jewish star, so does Drake and Seth Rogen. Goldberg has a gold yarmulke to match the belt he won from Hulk Hogan. We got Scarlett Johansson, talk about a kosher crush. And if you need a higher voice to turn you on, how about Getty Lee from Also don't have polio thanks to Dr. Jonas Salt. Smart dude. Well, that brings us to cue shots, and we are talking about the long, strange, and very successful, at least financially, career of Adam Sandler. So, Amy, what are your feelings about those early Adam Sandler movies? Because I have to say, from like Billy Madison through Little Nicky slash Punch Drunk Love, I'm pretty on board. Even I'll comedies. Admit, yeah, my friends and I were in love with him in high school. Really? We watched everything he did on Saturday Night Live. My best friend, Kathy Gutierrez, she had um, the Adam Sandler CDs, and we would just play them all the time. We knew all the words. Maybe in part that's why I get so annoyed at watching him be lazy now is because I feel like he let me down. It feels personal. Yeah. I 
I used to watch Billy Madison. Like one of my best friends in college was like adored Billy Madison. And we used to watch it all the time. And I had lines memorized. And I just thought the kind of total commitment, commitment to like dumb, hilarious chaos of it was fantastic, <laughs> you know? And I've always actually really appreciated, even in like Little Nicky, which I do not think is a masterpiece, the ending of that, I loved. Like, like I, I think that the, he's made some comedies that are dumb and funny in the best way. Totally. And he it was also a pretty good romantic lead. Yeah. I, I, I adored um, The Wedding Singer. Yeah. It's a strange movie, but there's something that he and Drew Barrymore had that was just such a legitimate spark. And even in Fifty First Dates, which is why it's bizarre that Blended was as terrible as it was, but he could play guy that you probably should love. Right. And now and now he just seems like he'd ruin your life. <laughs> he seems like the kind of guy, if you were in a relationship with him, that he would be constantly kind of locking himself in like his like his man cave to watch old tapes of his comedy or something like that. Oh, he's like a Gloria Swanson. <laughs> a, a Gloria Swanson of comedy and also only 49 years old. Ugh. You know, he's going to wake up someday and be like, why was I so miserable when he's 70? Yeah, it's interesting. I looked up uh, colleague Bilga Ebery uh, at Vulture, who has like, been one of Adam Sandler's great uh, defenders. And he wrote this long piece in defense of Adam Sandler, like uh, I think maybe two years ago. And he said something that I thought was interesting. I don't really buy all of this defense, but I did like this. He, he wrote, I was struck by the profound sense of self-loathing at the heart of all, his, all of his work. It peeks through in small moments in brief lines of dialogue, but it's always there. In Billy Madison, we learn that Billy, back when he was a child, was something of a bully, an entitled jerk who lorded it over others, even though he couldn't spell rock during a spelling bee. Happy Gilmore's short fuse dates back to his father's death, when he, which he himself caused. Uh, in his remake of The Longest Yard, Sandler plays a former NFL quarterback who got caught for throwing a game. He repeatedly endures beatings as if he needs to have the shame knocked out of him. You know, my mother didn't like you, doesn't like you very much, said a young boy in the animated Eight Crazy Nights. I don't like me very much either, Sandler's character replies, with his characteristic blend of distance and mopey disdain. Mind you, that is someone's defense of Adam Sandler. Wow. Uh, but I think there is something to that observation. Like, and I, I feel like it comes through more and more, you know, there is a sense of like, of, of self-loathing. You're right. I think there's the sense of a guy who can't see himself the way other people see him. Yeah. Because you've, you've never seen, it's strange. Sometimes I think that Adam Sandler has let his ego take over because he takes on these big projects with big budgets and then doesn't put the work in, which can strike me as ego. Mm-hmm. But but to hear Bilga's description, that's also 100% true. He doesn't seem to ha- – it's weird. At, at, at the one time, everything he does reeks of overconfidence, but then he himself doesn't seem to have that spark. Yeah. And it's, it's funny. So your first pick is one in which he tries – it's one in which he did – the thing that in theory would be like, oh, he's getting out of his comfort zone. He's trying an indie movie with a respected filmmaker. And it didn't work out. Do you want to talk about that a bit? Yeah. I mean, what's striking about the year 2015 in Sandler is that I don't think The Ridiculous Six is the worst movie of Sandler's <laughs> in 2016. In fact, it might even be the best, which is insane to say. Did you see Pixels? I did. And I would agree with you. I think it might be the best of the three. Oh my God, what does this mean for Sandler? 
I was like, like, pixels, I think, was the worst. Yeah. Cobbler's right up there. Cobbler's Mm. more offensive than pixels. Mm, Yeah, fair. Okay. We are talking about the cobbler. You just reminded me of this idea that um, every time we have a really great comedian, there seems to be this pressure for them to do something different than comedy. Like, when is this really great comedian going to stop making us laugh and try to make us cry? And yeah, Sandler's been feeling that pressure off and on. And like he did it for The Cobbler, where he was like, I'm going to do a movie that's serious. And he signs on to do a movie with a guy who could legitimately win the Best Director Award this year mm-hmm. at the Oscars, Tom McCarthy, who also did Spotlight. I-, I love that this is a year where we have one director making possibly the best movie of the year, and I would argue the worst <laughs> movie of the year in-, in one. I almost think you should get a prize for that. Yeah, very few people manage uh, that kind of spread. Yeah, but the cover for people who haven't seen it, which is actually a lot of people, although this is also on Netflix, is um, the film where Adam Sandler plays a a, a man who works at a, sh- at a cobbler shop, a shoe store in uh, New York. His name is Max Simkin. It's the cobbler shop that his family has owned for generations. And he learns one day that there's a magic machine in the bottom where when you use it to stitch on the soles of a shoe, and yes, soles is supposed to have double plays of meanings <laughs> here. Uh, when Adam Sandler puts those shoes on, if they are a 10 and a half, which is what he is, he puts on the skin of that person. The person doesn't switch bodies with him, but he just looks like that person without their knowing. It's almost like... Body rape, I suppose. I don't know. That no, no, it's not. It's not. I don't know. Can, <laughs> I don't know what I'm saying. But it's like he is. It he's feels borrowing that, them. He's borrowing, he's borrowing them. But it feels aggressive to me, which I think is why I use that word clumsily, because sometimes he puts on these people's shoes and he becomes these people who are real people um, to the outside world. And he uses their bodies to commit crimes and be a real jerk. Right. Stuff where, like, I kept thinking, oh, my God, when he takes off the shoes, that, that person could get arrested for what he just did. <laughs> he, like, puts on shoes of somebody and he, like, goes and mugs a person. And you're like, that person could be in a lineup. What are you doing? <laughs> and the, but the movie doesn't seem to care. The movie seems very, like, thoughtless about any of the consequences because it coasts on this idea that Adam Sandler is so charming. We're just going to be on his side no matter what. Right, like he's a nice guy. It's one of those movies where you're like, he's supposed to be such a nice guy that you're supposed to stick with him on a journey, despite the fact that he doesn't do very nice things. Yeah, he's always like this nice guy TM, where it's like, feel bad for him, love him, but he's being an aggressive jerk. Don't worry about that. He's going to be fine. A girl's going to wind up loving him for no reason at the end. Just play along. And he also, like there's that scene where he almost goes home with (gasps) his hot neighbor under the guise of being her boyfriend. Yeah, he her, he he lives next door to this perfect man played by Dan Stevens, who is actually a perfect man, mm-hmm. um, the, the absolute hot guy from the uh, from the guest. If people haven't seen that yet, I love that movie. And he goes into home with Dan Stevens, and his beautiful girlfriend wife is in the shower, and she's like, "Come into the shower." And literally, the only reason why Adam Sandler doesn't you know have this revenge of the nerds moment with this guy's girlfriend is because he'd have to take off the shoes to get in the shower. That is the only thing that stops him, not a conscience. <laughs> Just logistics. Yeah. It's funny. Like It's like Adam Sandler wanted to make something that was not an Adam Sandler movie, and yet he ended up in a weird Adam Sandler movie. Like a kind of threadbare version of it. Yeah, it's like an Adam Sandler movie with even fewer laughs. Yeah. I know. Fast. It's a fascinating film. It oh, also- yeah. I would be remiss if I didn't say, by the way, Tom McCarthy, did you notice that the three times he puts on, Adam Sandler puts on somebody else's shoes and commits a crime, 
it's a black person. It's three different black people. And I was like, what, what the, what the, I know I can't swear on this, but I felt like swearing. Like, how did that even happen? How did nobody notice that? Yeah. It's weird, especially because Tom McCarthy is someone who in his other movies makes these movies that are so kind of empathetic character studies. Like what happened? It's true. There's got to be this making of the cobbler story that I would love to know someday. Yeah, seriously. I don't know. But so do you recommend people see this movie? You know, it's the kind of bad movie that I I can't stop talking about. (laughs) So this is a movie that's good to see if you want to have a really fun 10 minutes telling a person about it at a bar. Yeah, I would agree. Um, so that is available. <laughs> I'm just like, how much time do you invest for that fun 10 minutes? But I guess you can share that 10 minutes with many people over many drinks at many bars. <laughs> um, so that's available streaming on Netflix. Uh, my next pick is, is only available for rent right now. Uh, but it's a movie I feel like I would legitimately say it's worth watching. I like this movie more and more. I think it's grown on me. It is Funny People, Judd Apatow's 2009 movie. Even though it's too long, and I find Leslie Mann just a much better presence when she's in non-Apatow movies and doesn't have to kind of bear the weight of all of her husband's complicated ideas about how men relate to women and how women oh, are. <laughs> but I, I really like it as a movie about comedy and fame and, and how the two relate or you know don't relate to happiness. And it does have like, it has the Sandler performance in which his moroseness the moroseness of his recent years makes total sense because as George Simmons, this kind of very successful, lonely guy, he's like a, he's a sadder version of Sandler in which all of the like kind of glumness that he shows on screen makes sense. You know, I, and I, I feel like Sandler in this movie, you know, makes you feel like you're seeing something that you, you shouldn't be allowed to, you know, it, it kind of promises this vision of, 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 insight into him as someone who became super famous for making these big dumb Adam Sandler-esque movies and who can like barely be bothered to put on a smile for the fans anymore um and it's 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 a a kind of interesting pairing with Chris Rock's top five you know which Sandler appears in as himself um because in both of them stand up represents this kind of pure more honest form of comedy that's this potential salvation um but I, I think it's mostly you watch it because you want to believe it's giving you some insights into Sandler, um, you know, that like it's giving you some reason why he has looked so checked out in his other work, even though I don't know that I think that's the case. You know, he maybe he's thrilled with the way things have gone. Uh, maybe he's, he sure acts like it. <laughs> yeah, he's certainly not short on cash, um, you know, but I feel like there is something about this movie and its willingness to portray him as just like an embittered jerk who kind of is interested in helping others only so far as it doesn't cost him anything, you know, and kind of the way he he smacks people down sometimes just because I think there's, there's something in it that feels very authentic as a portrait of kind of a miserable, successful Hollywood person. And uh, maybe it's not Sandler himself, but I, I do, I do really, I, I really find it intriguing. Uh, and you know, as, as far as Adam Sandler acting goes, 
it's it's as good as it's gotten in recent years, even if it's just kind of tailored around him rather than finding him kind of stretching out into new territory. It's just like it's like him doing a lot of what he does in other movies, except it's not, it doesn't need to be funny this time. <laughs> no, I agree. I'm also a big champion of funny people. I, it's possible to watch it and imagine you're watching a documentary because it feels very deliberate. You're, the fake titles of the films he stars in seem like they could have actually been Adam Sandler movies. Mm-hmm. I'm blanking, but it's stuff like Naughty Merman and stuff, mm-hmm. and Giant Babies. And you're like, yeah, Sandler, um, you've probably seen that script. You probably thought about it. You maybe even said yes, but the funding fell through. It feels so accurate. Mm-hmm. It also does feel like it has a lot of Judd Apatow in it, too. You know, that's also Judd Apatow's story. Like, he was a stand-up comedian when he was a teenager, when he was, like, 15, 16, and rose up out of that. I find stand-up really fascinating. You know, Mm -hmm. in New York, you must know tons of them. There's tons of them out here. And it does feel like this primal art where you know that minute that you tell the joke whether or not it worked. Right. You know, Adam Sandler can make Ridiculous Six, and he doesn't know how good or bad it's going to be until it's on Netflix. And it doesn't matter because he's sheltered from it. There's exactly. no audience there to like to sit through and make, make you feel the jokes landing or not landing. Yeah, stand-up, you get heckled. And I, I, I'm fascinated by it because I don't have a bone in my body that would, would, would want to do stand-up. <laughs> There's nothing in me that thinks standing in front of a group of people who are drinking, trying to get their attention and make them laugh at what you have to say is a good idea, but the stand-ups I've known who do it have to do it. Like, they're burning to do it. I used to live with a stand-up as a a friend, a roommate, and he had to go out three nights a week, four nights a week, do open mics, anything, to, like, get that mic. And when he comes home, he's quiet and sits on the couch and plays video games. Like, Mm -hmm. you wouldn't think he's not an extrovert, but there's this thing. It's almost outside of you. And I'm so happy I wasn't born with that because well, it looks real terrible oh, and it doesn't look terrifying. that good in funny people either. Yeah, no, I know. It looks terrifying. And I, it's so linked to being kind of brutally honest, you mm-hmm. know, like to this confessional kind of like stripping away of your public personas. Like uh, in this movie, making a making a comedy blockbuster, there's nothing presented as daring about that at all. Right. It represents selling out. It represents like uh, safety. It's kind of like it's because Sandler's character gets diagnosed with like a potentially terminal illness that he is willing to kind of put himself at risk again. And that's stand up. It's it's an interesting force in this movie Uh, and in top five, I think, in in both of them. It is. And from my brief memory of Sandler in top five, he was pretty funny. He is. He's the he like gives all of this advice about um, he's like sign the prenup. It'll be an awkward conversation. You should do it. And then Chris Rock is like, did you sign the prenup? And he's like, no. <laughs> we keep having excuses to talk about his wife in this episode. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we're going uh, reverse chronologically in order when we're, we are doing these about Sandler movies, which was not on purpose. But it makes perfect sense given my pick, which is the – I think criminally underseen 2006 comedy Click, which was also directed by Frank Karachi, who, as we've said, made the best Sandler movie of 2015. You can put as big of an asterisk as you want next to that. But Click was a movie that I saw um, when I was a fairly new film critic, and it was one of those things where it wasn't screening and anything I could get into. They made me go pay to see it on a theater on a Friday morning. 
And I sat there mad. I think it was raining. It was this unknown theater that I'd never even been to because no, nobody was even showing it. And I watched Click, which is a movie about a man uh, with a magic remote control, which could be a script that could be a script idea in Funny People. <laughs> but so Adam Sandler plays this guy who has a wife played by Kate Beckinsale, a couple kids, two, three, something like that, or daughter. And he gets this remote control and he decides that he can fast forward all the boring parts of his life. So he's like, oh, waiting to put the kids to sleep. I'm done with that. Let me get through all of this. And he keeps hitting fast forward until he fast forwards through most of his life. And the movie picks up where he's an old man suddenly. And he has no idea how he got there. And it becomes this nightmare. And he realizes he missed all the good parts of his life. And as insane as it is, when I started to watch Click in this movie theater and he wakes up and he's old again, I wept like a baby. It's It was insane. I started blubbering. I cried for like the last half hour of Click because it's Adam Sandler in the rain with this remote control being like, what have I done? And he, it turns out that while he was fast forwarding, his face was just, he was there. He was a body sitting at a table. You know, he was a dad eating his dinner, nodding, grunting when the time came, doing the minimum of getting by, kind of like a zombie. It's just his consciousness wasn't there. And his whole family just thought he was this typical checked out dad, which he was. He was literally being the most checked out version of that dad that he could be. But that's an archetype that I think a lot of people grew up with. You know, I have a lot of friends who had dads like that. My dad wasn't. My dad was amazing. Um, but, uh, yeah, this idea of sleepwalking through your life I find really universal in a movie where a guy has a magical remote control. This idea of thinking that the boring parts that you're just putting up with are pointless when when you get old maybe you're going to decide that those are the most valuable moments of your entire life and i i don't know that yet i'm not a person with like a kid or family and it terrifies me the idea that maybe i will have that sandler moment of like should i have done any of this differently It, it just has this almost a christmas carol tone to it that really hit me have you have you seen this movie do i, I sound like not. a crazy person no, but i mean i you're really selling me on it. I have not seen it, but I think I'm, I'm going to add it to my queue. It's, uh, it's streaming on Netflix. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think there is a potential for movies like this to also get it ideal, like get it those ideas and kind of surprise you in how they do it, you know? Yeah. I mean, like if there had been, in, in some ways, like an indie movie that tries to tackle these subjects more kind of deliberately... I, right, like are less a effective. drama about it, yeah, yeah, like something Duplassian. Yes, exactly. I mean, <laughs> I, I fully believe in the power, like the ability of, of a movie like this to kind of catch you by surprise and just bully you over. Absolutely. I mean, and I have to have the caveat: I've been afraid to ever watch it again. I never <laughs> have, but I think about it all the time. Wow, I'm I'm adding it to my queue now. Um, all right, all right. Let's click. It's on Netflix. Um, and my last pick uh, is available on Hulu and Amazon Prime. It was just added to both. And it's going way, way back to the beginning. If we're using the remote control, it would be going the other direction. Um, it is going overboard. And this is Adam Sandler's film debut made when he was just 22, a year before he joined Saturday Night Live in 1989. And I, I will say, it is as close to an objectively bad movie as I've seen in a long time. <laughs> <laughs> but there is something 
fascinating about, in, in, on, on one level also, how reviled it is in kind of on the IMDb page. It's, on the, it's in the IMDb bottom 100. Well, um, I'm looking at the score right now. It's 1.9 out of 10. Yes. When it doesn't feel, honestly, significantly worse to me than something like Jack and Jill, uh, which incidentally also features a cruise. This is set entirely on a cruise. Um, it's just rougher, you know? Uh, it, it, Adam Sandler movies have not always, I mean, in the worst of them, they just have no, almost no structure at all. This is an early example of that. Um, shot on a cruise ship for $200,000, written and directed by Valerie Brayman, uh, with Sandler and his co-star Scott LaRose getting writing credits as well. And Sandler stars as Shecky Moskowitz, an aspiring stand-up comedian who gets a job as a waiter on the ship, uh, but dreams of taking over for the ship's resident comedian instead. And that's basically the plot. There's a small side storyline involving General Noriega and Miss Australia, since there are a bunch of beauty queens on the boat. And this movie is really like, it alternates between kind of weird bits of like amateurish sketch comedy and then like women in bathing suits. Um, also though, it has Billy Zane in a small role as uh, Lord Neptune of the sea. The Lord Neptune? Yes. Like, the <laughs> god of the sea. This is a movie with Noriega and Neptune? And yes. And Billy Bob <laughs> Thornton appears as a heckling what? construction worker. All of the Billies are in this movie. And Milton Berle plays himself uh, and offered, offers advice to Shecky. Um, How does this movie only have 1.9 stars with is, such a cast like that? an amazing oddity. It is disjointed. It's not very funny. And its jokes are like vaudeville-era jokes. There's literally a part where Sandler kind of like wishes himself out of a dream by saying, take my wife, please. Take my wife, please. What? Yes. But, I mean, it has real novelty value. And, I, you know, especially as a reminder of, like, how much Sandler used to give in these roles, like, compared to all of this kind of, like, this glumness that we've talked about in his recent work. In this movie, he is, like, a ball of energy. He, like, talks to the camera. He, like, mugs at the camera. He apologizes for the movie's cheapness. Um, you know, like... It, in comparison to something like Ridiculous Six, where he is the straight man, like this is a movie that like has him just like sweating just to keep like keep energy going, and uh, it's funny also like as a contrast to Funny People, uh, a movie in which you know stand up represents his return to kind of sincerity. One of the lessons that Sandler's character learns in this movie is like not to be himself, to just tell what? jokes. <laughs> like he's kind of advised, he's like tell some jokes. That joke would never go over in the millennial era. Everything's about being yourself. I know, but it feels like it kind of like looked at in the context of these other movies. It feels like almost like this devil's bargain he made. Oh my god! <laughs> He's like, oh, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna do jokes, and 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 I guess he has. I guess that's what he's done. Wow. See, I was almost not believing you about any of this because this movie sounds like a fever dream. I know. It looks but... like a fever dream sometimes. <laughs> I just pulled up the cast list and oh my God, even Peter Berg, the director of Battleship and Lone Survivor is in this movie. Oh yeah. This is insane. Do I, do I have to see this movie? Because I mean, now I kind of want to. It is bad. Like it is, it is rough, but it's also like a weird time capsule I was happy I watched it. <laughs> Maybe 
maybe I will suck it up and I will do this. Maybe. If I get stricken by plague. Now I feel like I'm actually jinxing myself. If I'm stricken by plague and I can't leave the house for a week, I will watch this. All right. Well, you too can watch this movie. It is streaming on Hulu and Amazon Prime right now. Amy, what would you say is your favorite Adam Sandler movie? Ooh. Oh, that's tough. I could. put you on the spot. I know. I was just really thinking about it. I could give it to, I could give it, I suppose, to the wedding singer. Mm. I mean, I'm also just a sucker for that kind of music and for Drew Barrymore. Mm -hmm. So it'd be sort of like a a collateral approval of that entire thing. But that's tough. I could also see myself going for funny people, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, funny people, I really think he's good in Punch Drunk Love. But I think I might just go with Billy Madison. You know, it feels like the, the, the time where he was doing something that felt like this kind of quality of, of chaos that, that he was best able to bring. Huh. You know, someday, when it's all wrapped, we're going to be able to write a really interesting book about him. I would be down. Done. The Sandler Chronicles by <laughs> Allison and Amy. <laughs> Okay, well, we are going to skip what we normally call Singer and Wilmore's totally concise and completely succinct new release roundup because this is really the most dismal week for new releases of the year. Uh, There's nothing much coming out right now. It's just all of the holiday movies that have already come out, maybe going wider. So we're going to go right on to Behind the Eight Ball, in which we recommend each recommend uh, three titles that are new to streaming. Two that were recommended by you guys, the listeners, and one chosen blindly from our Netflix My Lists. And Amy, you are up first. Are you ready? I'm ready. Here we go. Okay, three new releases. Three new releases. Well, the first one I'm so excited about, and that is Spike Lee's Chirac. This just came out on um, streaming to to rent uh, last week, which was fantastic. This was my number one movie of the year. I adored it. I think it's vital, funny, smart. It's his retelling of Lysistrata. Everybody should be. Everybody should see it. It's nine day nine ninety nine. It's so hard to say numbers. It's nine ninety nine to uh, stream online right now on Amazon, YouTube, Google Play, whatever your favorite one is, and then it's going to go be free on February fourth on Amazon Prime. But I would just go ahead and watch it now. Nine ninety nine. It's like a ticket cost. You can watch it with a bunch of friends, and you'll be on top of the coolest movie of twenty fifteen. My second one is a movie that I also adored and made it on my on my top ten. This is Victoria. Have you seen this, Allison? I have seen it. It's really impressive. It's amazing. So, okay, how you know how last year Birdman was like, oh, we did a single track movie, single shot movie. It's a little bit faked, but it's pretty cool, right? Victoria is a German film that actually did do an entire movie in one shot. And not only that, it's a really complicated, amazing movie. It starts around 4 a.m. as this drunk uh, Spanish girl stumbles out of a bar in Berlin, meets these four thugs as they're trying to break into a car, and she just winds up hanging out with them all night and crazy stuff happens. This camera chases behind them as they go for rides in vans, as the girl plays the piano. It's completely unbroken, and it's absolutely phenomenal. And I just have to say that the lead actress in this, Laia Costa, everything she goes through in real time is fantastic. This should be like a best actress performance. Nobody's paying attention, but you can fix that. You can rent Victoria right now. It's three ninety nine on YouTube and Google Play and iTunes. Absolutely check that one out. 
And then my last one didn't make my top 10 list, but there is a moment in it that would if I did a list that was only top 10s. That is The Final Girls. The Final Girls is a horror comedy done by Todd um, Strauss-Schulson. And it's this idea of a girl who goes into the movie that her mother starred in when her mother was a scream queen in the 1980s. So it's these kind of absurdist hipster types all of a sudden thrust into this 1980s movie where these guys are going to stab, where this guy stabs a bunch of kids at a summer camp. And it plays so much with the horror tropes. It's, It sounds kind of... It sounds like you've seen this movie before, but what it actually does is just really surprising, really heartfelt. And the moment that sums it up best for me is when the mother character, who's played by Malin Ackerman, does a strip tease that has so much sad emotion that I do not want to spoil anything here, except to say that that's a moment that made me say, Malin Ackerman is amazing. We have criminally underappreciated her. I love her in Rock of Ages when she duets I Want to Know What Love Is with Tom Cruise. She just blows my mind. But that's also $3.99, and it's on Google Play, YouTube, and iTunes. So I would – oh, and on Amazon. I would check all of those out. They're fantastic. I have not seen Final Girls, and you have definitely made me want to. So I am going to take a look at that one. Oh, you're going to love it. Okay, two listener recommendations. I have two listener recommendations. Okay. Now, both of these are from Patrick Felton, who sent us a bunch of really good recommendations. First up, he recommends a film called Careful, which is available on a a platform I've never used before called FilmRise. And Patrick writes, quote, Since purchasing a Roku last year, I've been fascinated with fifth or sixth tier streaming services, most of which are free. A lot of what they have is uncurated, which means it's hard to gauge quality. But by some strange, some strange happiness, happenstance, careful, Guy Madden's love later to 1930s German mountain climbing films showed up a while ago. All Madden films are strange, but this one hits a great sweet. <laughs> this one hits a great sweet spot between surrealist nightmare and sly satire. Also, Filmers has a startlingly large collection of African cinema, but without much curation, it's hard to figure out where to start with it. And I have to jump in and say I saw careful. When a older film critic sat me down at a computer and said, watch this right now. <laughs> it's amazing. That's such a fantastic recommendation, Patrick. And his second one is also great. He recommends Scarlet Street. Patrick here is writing, quote, when Netflix pulled this Edward G. Robinson noir classic from its lineup a few months ago, I freaked out. Luckily, it's in the public domain and thus is available all over the place. Edward G. Robinson is just marvelous in a sort of mar- Marty-esque performance as a banker who gets caught up in a con scheme when a low-level huckster mistakes him for a successful artist. For hard noir, there's a surprising amount of heart, brought mostly from his chemistry with Joan Bennett, who's gorgeous. That's me, sorry. (laughs) Given how many grace notes the film has, it's hard to imagine it was directed by Fritz Long. Whoa, you you don't go dissing on Fritz Long, (laughs) but that's cool. Whatever. We can make peace, Patrick, because those are great recommendations. (laughs) And now, Allison is challenging me to name something from my Netflix queue. Yes, I gave you number nine. Number nine. Now, I have to confess, my Netflix queue is not that long because I'm impatient and I just tend to rent stuff right away on Amazon or something. Mm -hmm. So my number nine is pretty new and it is The Jewel of the Nile. I just put this on my queue about two months ago. Uh, The Jewel of the Nile is the sequel to Romancing the Stone. It's Michael Douglas and Kathleen Turner. I haven't seen The Jewel of the Nile, but I did just watch Romancing the Stone because I went to uh, Cartagena, Colombia for Christmas this year, and that's where Romancing the Stone is set, although I found out when I got there it's actually shot in Mexico. <laughs> so I thought, you know what, I liked that movie, time to see The Jewel of the Nile and understand what this uh, Michael Douglas, Kathleen Turner thing was all about for real. Kathleen Turner, so awesome. She's so awesome. great. Yeah. I know, She's underappreciated the these days. I know that voice. 
oh, she's just this classic movie star that happened to be birthed in the 80s. I love her. <laughs> hey, Allison, you got some three, two, ones for me? I do. Okay, starting up with new releases, I have Dazed and Confused, which is not a new film, but which is a great one, and it is new to Amazon Prime. And, you know, with uh, Richard Linklater's 80s set spiritual sequel, Everybody Wants Some, coming out in April. I just watched the trailer. I had been, like, a little afraid when he said spiritual sequel to Dazed and Confused. Uh, but you know what? I was sold. It just looks like a goofy, fun hangout movie. Um, so there is no better time to revisit Linklater's delightful ode to Texas teenagerdom in the 70s. Uh, I will say it may not be as kind of thematically ambitious as something like Boyhood, but this is my favorite Linklater movie, Days and Confused on Amazon Prime. And new to Netflix is White Christmas. Uh, this is the Christmas episode of Black Mirror, the brilliant Charlie Booker show, uh, which we talked about in episode number 66 or 76 of Film Spotting SVU. Um, so this was a Christmas episode from last year. It's finally up legally in the U.S. now. And it's a 90-minute special starring Ray Spall and John Hamm. And I will say 90 minutes is maybe not the ideal length for Black Mirror. I think its best episodes have been kind of deliberately leaner. But it's more like an anthology of three separate episodes. Uh, three separate like mini stories and the ideas in some of them, including this one in which uh, technology allows you to block someone in real life so that when you see, like you block someone, then they appear to you or you can, uh, they can only see you as this blur and they can't hear you or talk to you. Um, it's like, it's kind of amazing the, the way that that plays out. Um, so that's white Christmas on Netflix. You can find it by searching for black mirror and finally, also new to Netflix is The Men's, which is, I think, one of the better directorial debuts of the year from John Magary and, and has, like, Josh Lucas in the role that he was always meant to, to kind of play. You know, he's always been, like, the, the kind of sneakier-looking version of Bradley Cooper. Um, and in this, it's, like, the, the kind of snakily handsome role that he, he was uh, always, always meant to be cast in as this kind of force of... of of I don't know danger and and kind of unpredictability who just like washes up at his brother's place after getting kicked out by his girlfriend and the two kind of end up bringing out the worst in each other over this strange interlude of a few days in the apartment um so that's the men and it is on Netflix oh do it do I prompt you oh yes please okay oh I'm so sorry can we cut that out I'm so sorry yeah, I was, I was no worries okay. <clears throat> well, those should I start now? Yeah. <laughs> okay, cool. Uh, those are some awesome three recommendations, and I remember seeing the block feature. I watched it illegally. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I shouldn't admit that. Uh, but I remember seeing that block feature for the first time, and it just blew my mind. That's the coolest thing in that episode for sure. Yeah, it's so smart. Like, uh, you know, even even the parts of it that I think don't work as well, they still have really good ideas behind them. That's absolutely true. All right. What recommendations do you have? What n number two listener recommendations can we hear? Okay. First up, we have one from Matt uh, of obsessiveviewer.com. You can check out his writing there. Uh, Matt writes, I have a streaming recommendation that isn't technically available to stream, but is available for rent on Google Play. And I think iTunes as well. He says, it's a documentary called Peace Officer. 
It's an eye-opening look at the militarization of police in the U.S. framed around the story of retired of a retired sheriff named Dub, who investigates the death of his son-in-law in the, at the hands of a SWAT unit following a standoff. It's a very moving documentary that left me with a lot to think about. It also made my top 10 list for 2015. Um, and I would recommend that as well. Uh, I was actually on the South by Southwest uh, doc jury uh, when this movie premiered uh, earlier this year or earlier in 2015. And uh, we ended up picking it as the winner, Peace Officer. So thank you for that, Matt. Um, and then secondly, we have a recommendation from Angela, who, who recommends Pay the Ghost, which is new to Netflix. She writes, it is with joy that I write to recommend a movie. A joy because I don't see many movies that I want to recommend lately. I don't know if I'm becoming crazily picky and judgmental in my old age, or if I've missed many of the good movies, but I just don't see that many that I like. This one was just a fluke. I was watching trailers on YouTube and it was in the lineup and the trailer is great. And not only the trailer, the movie is great too. All the way from the acting, the script, the set design, sound design, camera work, just off the top. Uh, I read that one reviewer found it lackadaisical and low energy, but this is very classy, low-key horror with only the most tasteful and delicious shocks and scares. And this guy, lovely Nicolas Cage's guy, is 50, and so the, mo- the film moves at the speed of a 50-year-old. It's possibly one of the most delightful and delicious horror movies since Notorious or Charade. Unfortunately, it's not on Netflix here in Canada, but I will say, Angela, it is on Netflix in the U.S. Um, so thank you for that recommendation. Pay the Ghost, the Nicolas Cage movie. Uh, if you're in the U.S., you can stream that on Netflix. Well, and Allison, then I gave you a number so I could hear something from your Netflix clue, a cue. And in honor of the year of 2016, I gave you 16. What do you got for me? Okay, 16 is just another girl on the IRT. What is that? That's Leslie Harris's film from like 1992 about a black teenager growing up in Brooklyn uh, who kind of dreams of getting out of her neighborhood and going to college, but is also kind of uh, a a little sure of herself. And of choices that she she's not necessarily making that are great. Uh, you know, it was one of those movies that like played at Sundance in 1993, and like it was in competition against like uh, Brian Singer's Public Access, like his his directorial debut, and like Robert Rodriguez's El Mariachi. But it's one of those movies that like it just never led to something more, you know, despite a lot of acclaim and despite like Sundance not being uh, always a place I, like that kind of has featured a lot of great stories about kind of like, uh, you know, black characters, um, especially in those, in the nineties. Um, and yet Harris, uh, has not gone on to make another movie yet. I think she huh. even, like, there was a story where she was like asking Michael Moore about it at like a screening in New York of his movie about kind of like supporting female filmmakers. Um, so it's a movie that I've heard a lot about. And I, when I saw it, it had turned up on Netflix, I added it to my list because I've like I've heard really good things about it. But you know, and, and I, I am really interested in like who kind of got to have careers coming out of Sundance, especially in like getting into those like heydays of '90s indie film, and yeah. who has been forgotten. And oh wow! Now yeah. I want to watch that. <laughs> It'll be on my queue at number ten because right. mine is very small. <laughs> I'm glad. Um, All right. Well, that's just another girl on the IRT. And that is also on Netflix. 
So I have had the honor of being joined by Jen Yamato and Amy Nicholson uh, over this episode and the last one, and it's been such a pleasure. Um, yeah, you guys have been so great. Uh, you guys both picked some, like, I don't know if, if great is the word I'd use necessarily, given the topic of this one, but some really <laughs> interesting movies to discuss, and it has been so fun to talk about them with you. I can be fairly sure great is not the word you're going to use. <laughs> Um, but so Matzinger will be back in the next episode. And so we are bringing back the listener's choice poll as well, in which we let you vote on which of three options you'd like us to review in the next episode. Uh, and we have three streaming options for you to choose from. Um, Amy, what's the first option? Well, the first option is Mississippi Grind. That's Anna Bowden and Ryan Fleck's film about two gambling addicts making their way through the American South. This was a huge thing at Sundance last year. Now it's out on Prime. It stars Ben Ben Mendelsohn and Ryan Reynolds as the regular on the edges pair. And you can find that now. Yeah. And, you know, I hear, like, I don't know if it's going to happen, but Ben Mendelsohn's got, like, a little bit of support for, like, you know, the off-kilter acting categories. So I don't know if anything's going to come of that, but I really liked him in that movie. No, he. this is one of the movies that really has put him even more squarely on the radar. And yeah. I actually love Ryan Reynolds. I'll defend him forever. I like Ryan Reynolds. I don't always like him in movies, but he's good in this. This role is a good fit for him. All right. Well, next up, uh, and this is at the request of Austin Bernie, who asked for this one on Twitter. And uh, I'm pretty excited if it wins. I'd be happy to talk about this. Is Gangs of Wasipur. This is Anurag Kashyap's five-plus-hour Indian crime drama that screened at Cannes and it screened at Sundance. And it is now streaming on Netflix. I think in uh, in theaters in India, it was released as two separate, like a two-part movie. Um, but what is streaming for if not to binge something that is five-plus hours? And it's it's gotten a lot of acclaim, the kind of like sprawling, brawny uh, crime saga, except uh, in India. So um, Gangs of Wasipur. That is on Netflix, option number wow. two. Well, and finally, it's Bone Tomahawk. It's, uh, S. Craig Zale's combination quirky ramble and horror western starring Kurt Russell, Patrick Wilson, Matthew Fox, and my beloved Richard Jenkins. It, uh, Bone Tomahawk is now streaming on Amazon Prime. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Bone Tomahawk is now streaming on Amazon Prime. So send your pick to svu at filmspottingsvu.com. That's svu at filmspottingsvu.com. Or enter in the poll on the right-hand side of this page at filmspottingsvu.com. Your vote has to be received by Monday, January 11th at noon. And I would like to say a special thank you to Amy Nicholson for joining us here on Film Spotting SVU. Amy, uh, if people want to find your writing and follow you on Twitter, where can they do that? Oh, that would be awesome. You can find me on Twitter at the Amy Nicholson, and Nicholson is spelled just like Jack Nicholson. So, any film nerds, you guys got that. Uh, and yeah, I'm also the chief film critic at the LA Weekly. So, that's just laweekly.com. And also, uh, they share me with the Village Voice and many local other Village Voice media publications. But find me at the LA Weekly. That's easy. It's short. Um, and yeah, you can always find more about the show, including an archive of the past episodes here to get more Allison time in, um, as well as a list of direct links to all of the titles we've just discussed at filmspottingsvu.com. And I get my Allison time in at Sundance. I can't wait to see you. Yeah, it's going to be great. Um, the Filmspotting SVU remix theme song is by Vince Vandal. Uh, listen to more of Vince's work at vincevandal.com. And Filmspotting SVU will be back in two weeks with more recommendations and the triumphant return of Matt Singer, new father. Sleepless Matt Singer. Yes, it'll be good. It's going to be loopy. 
um, in the meantime, you can follow me on Twitter at Allison Wilmore, and you can follow Matt on Twitter at Matt Singer, and you can follow this show on Twitter at FilmSpottingSVU, and at that account, we also share more streaming suggestions, things that are new that you might want to add to your cues. And for FilmSpottingSVU, I'm Allison Wilmore. And filling in for Matt Singer, I'm Amy Nicholson. Apologies for making anybody watch Ridiculous 6, and thanks for listening. <laughs>